Hi, everybody, and welcome to Macro Markets with Guggenheim Investments, where we invite leaders from our investment team to offer their analysis of the investment landscape and the economic outlook. I'm Jay Diamond, Head of Thought Leadership for Guggenheim Investments, and I'll be hosting today. We are recording this episode on February 3rd, 2023. Now, before we dive in, there are some housekeeping items I'd like to mention. First, if any of our listeners have a question or a comment, just send them to us at macromarkets at guggenheiminvestments.com, and we'll try to answer them on an upcoming episode. Second, if you have a minute and you like what you're hearing on Macro Markets, please rate us five stars. Okay. Well, this week was eventful in many ways in the markets and in the economy and with the FOMC meeting and the release of some key economic data. Helping to explain what it all means for the economy and for investors is Brian Smedley, Chief Economist of Guggenheim Investments and the head of our Macroeconomic and Investment Research Group. Before joining Guggenheim in 2015, Brian was head of short rates research at B of A Merrill, and before that, he was a senior official at the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. Brian, thanks for coming back to speak with us today. Thanks for having me, Jay. Great to be with you. Now, there's a lot to cover, uh, but let's start with policy and this week's FOMC meeting. What exactly did the Fed decide this week, and how does it fit into their overall policy goals? Well, BFOMC raised rates by 25 basis points, which was widely expected. And importantly, they also guided in the FOMC statement toward ongoing increases in the federal funds target rate, which is consistent with the dot plot they released in mid-December, which at the time implied another 75 basis points of rate hikes this year. So with them having delivered one 25 basis point hike, you know, the implication from the FOMC statement is that the March meeting is likely to see a hike and possibly may as well. Right. Because they did say increases, not increase. They did. And there was some debate going in in the market as to whether they would take out the word ongoing increases. Uh, that's the language they've had in for some time. And it uh, su you know suggests that they have some ways to go before they reach the ultimate destination at the top of this hiking cycle. So it sounds like they're leaving their options open and, and their base cases and they expect at least a couple more rate hikes yet to come. Now, did you hear anything noteworthy from Chairman Powell in the press conference? Yeah, I think we did hear some notable comments from Chair Powell. Uh, in some past press conferences, he's been more vigilant on the topic of financial conditions and has pushed back fairly forcefully at times on the easing of financial conditions that we saw over the course of last year. And I think one thing that was surprising was the lack of pushback from Chair Powell on financial conditions easing. In fact, one of the reporters asked him what he made of the easing of financial conditions since the December meeting. And he, he went so far as to say that some of the things they look at suggest that financial conditions were essentially unchanged on net. Um, that's different from our reading of the situation. In fact, if you look back to May, uh, June of last year, when the Fed was stepping up the pace of hikes in the midst of a rapidly accelerating inflation, uh, we've seen fairly broad-based easing of financial conditions, at least in recent months, taking us back to the comparable levels uh, that we were at in May or June. So the kind of things I've, I'm talking about is, despite the fact that the federal funds target rate has increased by 375 basis points since the first part of June, uh, you have stock prices higher, you have uh, credit spreads tighter, the dollar is weaker, 
And overall borrowing costs, for example, the yield on the, the high yield corporate bond index is actually a bit lower today than it was in, uh, in mid-June. So we see some degree of the Fed's easing having been undone by financial market development. So I think it was surprising that he didn't push back on that. And then I think, you know, something that goes along with that was uh, he essentially acknowledged that the market's view of inflation as being likely to cool a bit faster than the Fed is expecting over the balance of this year, that that market view might be correct. I think he expressed a, a, some degree of humility, but maybe I would say even uh, some ambiguity or high degree of uncertainty. And so I think that the market took that as being uh, risk-friendly. We saw bonds rally with yields coming down across the curve, particularly in the belly. And we also saw, of course, risk assets respond very favorably. So I want to get back to financial conditions uh, in a minute because uh, we got a, an, another data point today on the labor market. And so let me ask you this. Before the, the jobs data came out today, did you think that the Fed should have hiked more or less? And now that we have seen the jobs number today, do you think the Fed should have hiked more or less? I think it's a great question. Uh, before we got the jobs data today, I was of the view that the Fed probably should have hiked by 50 basis points. At the last meeting, Chair Powell noted that if financial markets didn't internalize and appropriately price the degree of policy restraint that the FOMC intended through rate hikes and through balance sheet runoff, that the Fed might need to do more tightening to, to offset that. So that kind of set the stage for a bit more hawkish uh, development at the FOMC meeting that we got. So I think, you know, in retrospect, I would have thought the it would have been wise to do more front loading of the hiking cycle, uh, which in my view probably should have meant delivering another 50 basis point rate increase. And then maybe there's another hike of 25 in March. We'll see what the data shows us. And uh, and then they can take it from there. But, but they decided to go uh, slower. And I think the fact that they slowed the pace of rate hikes so quickly from 75 a few months ago to 50 in December and now 25 at this February meeting, that's actually caused financial conditions to ease. Because even though the, the level of rates is rising, of course, um, the second derivative, if you will, or the rate of change in the policy tightening is slowing down. And that's, as I noted earlier, that's uh, supported um, actually lower interest rates across the treasury curve over the last several months, tighter credit spreads, rise in stocks, um, and year-to-date, you know, of course, a strong rally in the most beaten down segments of the market. Um, dollar has depreciated fairly uh, notably and, and implied and realized volatility have subsided. So um, that all seems to be a little bit counter to what the FOMC seems uh, to want to achieve, which is to slow down aggregate demand by tightening financial conditions so that the labor market can come into better balance, uh, that can cool off wages to a more sustainable pace, and that can help to anchor inflation uh, at the appropriate level. So, Brian, you've always said you should never, you know, place too much emphasis on one data point. But uh, today's release on the jobs picture definitely caught some folks by surprise in, in terms of its strength. Uh, what was your takeaway from that? Look, the non-farm payroll report today was uh, a blockbuster report. Um, job gains came in way above expectations in the month of January. We saw 517,000 increase in payroll jobs. That was actually the 13th consecutive month where payrolls came in higher than consensus expectations. 
Um, and also we saw the prior two months of job gains revised up by a net 71,000. So there was broad-based strength, I would say, in the, in the categories of jobs. Uh, we also saw a tick down in the unemployment rate to a new cycle low of 3.4. Actually, that's a multi-decade low. You've got to go back to the 1960s to see a, uh, an unemployment rate that low. So the job market is unambiguously strong. I would also point to a couple of other data points that came out within the last week. One showing that job openings are on the rise again. That came from the JOLTS data. And then also we got the conference board's consumer confidence measure, something we call the labor differential, which is kind of the net share of respondents who say that getting a new job is easy. And, uh, and that's moved up for the last couple of months and is at a very high level compared to its historical trend. So, you know, I think that the, the totality of the signals on the labor market suggests that we're still in a very, very strong place. We've got some better news on wage growth. I think it's important to point that out. Um, wage growth is still elevated uh, relative to where the Fed would like it to be, but not quite as hot in Q4 as it was earlier in 2022. So I'm pointing specifically to uh, the Employment Cost Index, or ECI, which moderated uh, late last year. Uh, that's a quarterly data series. It's um, a little bit lag, but it's one of the best measures of wage growth that we have. So it was encouraging to see that cooling off a little bit, which, you know, again, probably played into uh, Chair Powell's characterization of the data uh, and a little bit more balanced tone from him than we've heard in recent FOMC meetings. So, uh, Brian, is there anything that noisy about a, a January jobs report in terms of seasonal adjustments that you know may have contributed to the strength of today's numbers? Yes, definitely. I think there's actually two issues that flattered the January jobs number. The first is seasonal adjustment, as you mentioned. January, it has a huge seasonal adjustment uplift of over 3 million jobs. And that may be excessively high this time, given overfitting of the seasonal adjustment factor to an Omicron-related decline in jobs growth in January 2021. And so there are estimates that put this so-called excessive seasonal adjustment at around 50 to 100,000 for this month. Um, the second factor is weather. Uh, which was unseasonably warm last month, and that could have boosted jobs by another roughly 50,000. That still leaves you with a fairly strong number. It really does, even if you assume that the underlying trend is, again, maybe 100, 150,000 slower than that. We're still growing jobs um, close to 400,000 in the month, which is several times faster than we need just to keep the labor market employed, just to keep the unemployment rate steady. So. Uh, it's a gangbusters job market still. What do you think about financial conditions and the, the likely response of the Fed? Well, look, my guess is is that Fed speakers will be pushing back against the market's dovish, dovish interpretation of the of the data and Chair Powell's press conference. And I think one way they'll do that specifically is is to continue to say that the bar for cutting rates is very high. the The market is pricing in. Uh, some rate cuts starting in the second half of this year and continuing well into uh, 2024, throughout 2024. Um, so I think we'll we'll hear Fed speakers indicating that they think rates are going to need to move into restrictive territory, that there's more work to do, several more rate, rate increases coming, and that they intend to keep rates at that restrictive level for uh, the foreseeable future. Um, and I think that's especially 
likely given the jobs data that we had today, uh, which we've discussed. But one, one thing I think is also worth mentioning is that in addition to the gain in payrolls, there was a, there was a really big jump in, in hours worked. Um, and uh, the gain in hours worked that we saw of three tenths uh, per, uh, of an hour per week is equivalent to adding over a million jobs um, to, to American payroll. So uh, especially with this data in hand, I suspect that Fed officials are going to be uh, pushing back on, on, uh, on recent market price action. Also this week, we got the initial estimate for fourth quarter GDP, uh, which was positive. Um, what's your take on this data point? Um, and how does it factor into your view on the possibility of a recession and what that recession might look like? I think I would look at the GDP data in the context of, of what we saw throughout 2022. The first half of the year, we saw weak, in fact, negative GDP growth in real terms. And that was partly because we got such strong nominal side pressure. We saw uh, the GDP deflator rising at a very rapid pace in the first and second quarter of last year. Inflation subsided uh, in the second half of the year. Oil prices have declined for the last seven months now, uh, and uh, and other price pressures have cooled. So that's actually contributed, I think, to a bit of a rebound in real GDP growth, the quantity of goods and services produced. So I think if you look at the headline, there was a very strong 2.9% annualized increase in Q4, but the details were a lot less flattering. So similar to how we think about a concept of core inflation uh, that tries to give us a better signal to noise ratio by stripping out some more volatile components, um, we can do the same for GDP. And when we do that, we can see that the headline GDP figure 2.9% was boosted by a 1.5 percentage point contribution from inventories. 0.6 percentage point boost from foreign trade and 0.6 percentage point gain from government spending. So these categories uh, tend to be more volatile and are not as useful when thinking about the forward trajectory for the economy. So if we focus on the underlying de domestic demand, again, a kind of a concept of core GDP, if you will, this is, this is private consumption and investment. The fourth quarter annualized growth rate was just 0.2%. Uh, consumption slowed, business investment was flat, housing activity plunged, and historically slowdowns of this magnitude and underlying demand, you know, controlling for changes in supply side potential growth over the course of, uh, of of the decades. But this trend has usually led to a recession in the next few quarters. So, uh, you asked, how does it shape our view on the the business cycle? I think the data, um, when we analyze it this way, is consistent with an economy that continues to slow and we think lose momentum. And um, that doesn't mean we're staring in imminent recession in the face, but I do think that within the next six months, maybe nine months, we're likely to see clearer signs of recessionary dynamics emerging. So I think it would be consistent with the message that we see on our recession dashboard, for example, or our recession probability model, which indicates that we are experiencing a late cycle slowdown in growth that over the balance of this year, we think is likely to materialize into the start of a recession. You know, Greenspan had his conundrum and, you know, Powell's conundrum is really, this seems to me, the, the strength of the jobs market. It's a conundrum. <laughs> it is. It's striking. And I mean, I think it's, it, it, you have to consider both supply and demand side factors in that the, the reality is that demand for labor is still very strong. There are a lot of businesses that have, uh, as our listeners know, have had a hard time 
hiring workers and retaining workers, labor turnover has been very elevated. Um, and so we still have high demand for labor. I mentioned that the job openings number is, has picked up. Uh, we're a little bit off the cycle high, but not by much. Um, and taken at face value, total job openings are still far above uh, anything we've seen in recent cycles. Um, so uh, the demand side is still holding up pretty well. And on the supply side, uh, we're still missing millions of workers relative to the pre-pandemic trend. Some of that is potentially cyclical or maybe COVID-induced, but a lot of it is also structural changes in or the, the aging of our workforce demographic changes where we've got a, a large number of uh, people moving into retirement years and not as many people coming up in, into, uh, into their, um, their working, start their working careers. We've also seen a big slowdown in, in uh, net immigration and flows into our labor force, which is a crucial aspect of our healthy labor market. And, um, and in the last five, six years, that's really tailed off. So I think that taken together helps explain why we've got an unemployment rate down at 3.4%. And it is a challenge for Powell and his colleagues at the Federal Reserve. Well, we should definitely do a, an episode of Macro Markets that focuses just on demographics. And as far as that goes, given the recent inflation data, jobs data, as well as what you're seeing in financial conditions, Brian, to put you on the spot, what is your view of the possible course of monetary policy from here? Well, look, I think the Fed is going to stay the course. Um, and I think the risk is that they maybe do a little bit more than the market is pricing in over the next few months. Our base case is that they'll hike 25 basis points at the March meeting in about six weeks, and that they'll follow that up with another 25 basis point hike in May. Uh, May, obviously, we have a little bit less clarity, um, but um, you know it's possible that we see a, a, a slowdown in the job market by then that may take that hike off the table. But, but for now, our base case is that they deliver another 50 basis points of hikes, and that takes the Fed funds target range to five to five and a quarter. Uh, and um, in the meantime, they're going to continue to shrink the balance sheet. Um, we think that'll continue really through uh, pretty much the end of 2023. We do think that by the end of the year, they will pivot and start to ease. But that's only after, in our view, you see the unemployment rate starting to rise fairly significantly. If this business cycle is extended longer than we think, and the job market continues to to be very, very strong where there's another inflationary shock through, let's say, higher oil prices or something else, I think the risk is that they just continue to hold rates at a high level for longer. But our current base case is that you know we're nearing the end of the hiking cycle, but there's a bit more work to do, and then they'll hold steady there. Uh, yield curve will continue to be deeply inverted through this year, and that as we get to the end of 2023, then the next easing cycle will probably begin. So it sounds to me like uh, 2023 is going to be an inflection point of a year, possibly, which uh, brings me to the point about uh, the fact that you and your team recently produced the 10 macro themes for 2023, which addresses many of the issues that uh, we've been talking about today. So let's go through the 10 themes uh, in kind of a lightning round. And so I'll start with the first theme. Inflation will fall more than the Fed expects. Yeah, that's right. Um, we think in U.S. inflation is set to fall pretty sharply this year, and many of the factors that drove inflation higher are now reversing. So goods prices are already falling, and supply chain improvements suggest that more declines are coming. Um, timely alternative measures of rent, which is the largest contributor to current inflation, 
suggests that the official data will slow substantially later this year. Services inflation excluding housing will come down, we think, as pent-up demand from the pandemic fades and wage growth normalizes in a cooling labor market. So uh, bringing that all together, we expect core PCE inflation will come in under 3%, which is well below the 3.5% the Fed projected as of the December uh, SEP. Okay, next theme, the unemployment rate will rise from historically low levels. Right. Well, um, that certainly wasn't the case in January, but Fed communication has made it clear that not only does reported inflation need to come down, but it must stay contained over the medium term. So for the Fed to be confident that that will happen, they need to see a weaker labor market to keep wage pressures in check. Um, they're very wary of repeating the 1970s experience where inflation ratcheted higher and higher, as did unemployment over the course of that decade. So the Fed's unemployment projections have been steadily rising over the last year plus, and officials now expect, or as of December, they expected to see more than a one percentage point rise in the unemployment rate. So we think the lagged effect of recent Fed tightening may be enough to cause that higher unemployment, um, and several of the leading indicators we track do support that view. But if that's not the case, we think the Fed will continue to hike and shrink its balance sheet until it sees a, late, a weaker labor market. All right. Next theme. A recession will start around the middle of 2023. Yeah, that's the message from our recession forecasting tools. Uh, I mentioned earlier the recession probability model and our uh, recession dashboard. Both of those indicate that we are in the final innings of this expansion, that a downturn is potentially six months away, give or take. And an increase in the unemployment rate of the size the Fed is envisioning has always been associated with a recession. Among other signs, we've got an inverted yield curve and falling leading economic index. They're pretty clear warning signs of an impending economic downturn. And in terms of recession severity, we don't see an overly severe downturn. The economy doesn't appear, in our view, to have major imbalances that would amplify a recession. And household and corporate balance sheets are in pretty good shape in aggregate. So that should help cushion the downturn. Let me mention also, uh, I know we're going to uh, get to China, but the, the outlook for Europe is a little bit brighter with mild weather for this winter so far and with China reopening. That's also going to, that's that's uh, shaped our recession severity views in a, in a slightly favorable direction. All right. Next theme, strong credit fundamentals will limit spread widening. Yeah. Look, in 2020 and 21, we saw U.S. companies issue record volumes of debt in an effort to improve balance sheet liquidity and lock in extremely low borrowing rates. Um, and since that time, of course, the strong pace of nominal GDP growth drove a robust increase in corporate output and corporate revenues. So um, as a result, we've seen interest expense for U.S. non-financial corporates come down, and it stands at just 2% of corporate output or, or corporate GDP, if you will, which is the lowest we've seen since the 1960s and far lower than we had in 2008, for instance. So um, these dynamics, we think, should result in more manageable interest expense levels, even in a possible earnings recession. And we think that should limit uh, defaults, which will pick up in a recession, uh, but be more muted as a result. And this should also feed through into more limited spread widening than we've seen in some prior cycles. All right. Next theme, attractive yields will drive fixed income returns. That's right. I think that's the positive side of the Fed's aggressive tightening cycle, uh, which drove a painful resetting of bond yields last year. But the upshot is that the central bank has put income back in fixed income, thereby improving return prospects. So based on the starting yield of the Bloomberg Ag, which was about 6% to, to start this year, 
that puts the total return profile for the index at the higher end of the historical range for the last several decades. So that historical relationship between the yield on the index and the subsequent annual returns, again, would be fairly favorable uh, given the starting yield. So I would say also that a recession could boost index returns further if an investor flight to safety drives bond yields lower. So of course you have some you know trade-off if spreads widen, but uh, but um, uh, generally speaking, with the higher quality segments of the U.S. fixed income market, we would expect to see the drop in treasury yields more than offset the widening in spreads for the higher quality segments. All right, five themes down, five to go. Uh, next one, high quality fixed income will outperform equities. Well, we talked about recession forecasting. Um, we've also got internal tools based on economic and market indicators that that help guide our asset allocation decisions. And those models have flipped to a risk-off asset allocation regime where or, over the course of these regimes, which often can last you know a few years in a bear market, we tend to see safer assets such as high quality corporate bonds uh, outperform riskier assets such as equities. So uh, past bear regimes have seen outperformance of bonds versus stocks and our analysis suggests that we should be in this kind of fond favorable environment throughout 2023. All right, next thing. Bonds will again provide diversification as the Fed wins the inflation battle. Yeah, this is an important lesson that we uh, that we were reminded of as investors last year was that we've been in a kind of favorable investment regime since the late 1990s, where the correlation between stocks and bonds tended to be negative, meaning that in periods where you've seen a, a drawdown in your equity allocation, we've tended to see strong performance. In fact, you know, positive returns for fixed income. So. Um, you know, that gets to fixed income often being used uh, to provide income in a portfolio and diversification. Uh, and the lower the correlation with equities, the greater the potential diversification benefits. Actually, if you go back prior to the late 1990s, you had stocks and bonds being positively correlated. And that was in part, we think, due to high expected inflation and inflation uncertainty. And then you had a period of more than 20 years in which low inflation supported a negative correlation. Uh, but then the return of high inflation following the COVID pandemic has flipped the correlation positive again since 2020. Um, and then look, looking ahead with inflation as well as inflation expectations likely to fall as a recession begins, we expect the correlation between stocks and bonds to once again turn negative. And that negative correlation we think would add to the appeal of core fixed income. Let me just m uh, mention here before moving on to the next theme that if any of our listeners uh, want to check out our 10 macro themes, they can find it on our website at, at guggenheiminvestments.com slash perspectives. And all these things that Brian is describing are, are illustrated with some terrific charts. The next theme is that the structural housing supply shortage will limit the downside to home prices. Yeah. After surging in 2020 and 2021, home prices have been declining in recent months as the jump in mortgage rates has weighed heavily on demand. So these declines have sparked fears of a deep downturn in home prices, reminiscent of the 2007 to 2012 experience. We think those fears are overblown. Housing market fundamentals are very different now than they were the last time home prices fell. Most importantly, housing supply remains near decade low levels due to the long period of underbuilding we've seen uh, really since uh, starting before the GFC. 
and high mortgage rates have also deterred would-be sellers. So in addition, uh, we've seen deleveraging over the past decade that will prevent any significant forced selling. Uh, the aggregate loan to value, if you will, taking the total amount of mortgage debt outstanding divided by the total value of the housing stock, um, that's at a very low level. And this tight uh, supply environment and uh, the deleveraging in the housing sector, we think should keep home price declines contained in 2023. And by the way, GFC is great financial crisis. All right. Next theme, the penultimate theme, China reopening will boost energy demand. Yeah. One of the, um, I think one of the big surprises of the last few months is how quickly Chinese policymakers have reversed their zero COVID policy. That's boosting mobility. In turn, that's going to lift energy demand in China and across Asia. And it's also, we think, going to support oil prices amid a looming U.S. recession. Um, the removal of COVID restrictions plus Beijing's ending of the crackdown on real estate and internet platforms, we think it's going to stabilize Chinese uh, economic growth. And uh, the reopening of China is also going to help uh, lift emerging market currencies um, and weigh on the dollar. We think that's one of the key reasons why the dollar strength reversed starting several months ago. Uh, is China's reopening and what that the positive tailwind that that's going to be for many countries, particularly outside the United States. So um, let me just say, though, that we don't expect meaningful inflationary pressure emanating from China's reopening. Um, limited government stimulus in an effort to avoid you know, fueling another credit bubble or exacerbating the credit uh, imbalances means that their recovery is not going to be as investment-driven as it's been in the past. And also you've got sizable goods producing capacity in China that will allow it to absorb a surge in consumption, especially when export demand is deteriorating as growth slows here uh, and in Europe. So um, a positive uh, growth catalyst, I think, coming from China, uh, but we're not overly concerned about uh, the inflationary spillover. All right. The last thing and one that we're going to be talking a lot about in the next couple of months. Uh, divided government and narrow majorities will spur a debt limit drama. That's right. Um, look, narrow majorities in Congress have become more and more common in recent years, and that's resulted in policy gridlock and dysfunction. Uh, divided government after last year's midterm elections, we think is going to exacerbate that dynamic. Um, an immediate threat from the gridlock, as you mentioned, is the debate over the debt ceiling, which will need to be raised before the extraordinary measures from the Treasury are exhausted. Uh, as early as June. Um, so this year's debt limit debate looks to be especially contentious with new house rules complicating matters and with both parties looking to score a win ahead of the 2024 presidential race. Um, we don't expect it to fall, but the standoff we think is likely to go until the last minute, possibly resulting in a reprise of the 2011 debt limit debate, which led to a US credit rating downgrade. A lot of people may remember that and a market sell-off. Um, so this uh, debate, we think, could also result in a government shutdown, potentially, which would worsen the market impact. Great work uh, brought in by you and the whole macroeconomic and investment research group. Uh, and the 10 themes is really only um, a, a snapshot of all of the work that you do as part of our investment process. But it's a lot to absorb. Uh, and so I was wondering if you could sum it all up for our listeners. What, like, what's the, the main takeaway that they can... Uh, glean from the 10 themes and, and what we were talking about in the first part of our conversation. 
Yeah, I would say the key takeaway is that most of the Fed's work in tackling high inflation is behind us. And what that means is that we are at a very interesting point in the business cycle to allocate to high quality fixed income. That's because, again, the yield opportunity available is quite attractive. And we're also looking at an economy that's yet to experience the full effects of the monetary tightening that's just been delivered. So we think we're near the peak in the business cycle. The job market as we go through the year is likely to weaken. And that turn in the business cycle, we think is going to be a favorable tailwind for fixed income. So you're getting paid to move up in quality, to be defensive in your asset allocation. Fantastic. Thank you again, Brian, for your time. I hope you'll come back and visit with us again soon. Thanks, Jake. Great to be with you. And thanks to all of you who have joined us for our podcast. Again, if you like what you are hearing, please rate us five stars. And if you have any questions for Brian or any of our other podcast guests, please send them to macromarkets at guggenheiminvestments.com and we will do our best to answer them on a future episode or offline. I'm Jay Diamond, and we look forward to gathering again for the next episode of Macro Markets with Guggenheim Investments. But in the meantime, for more of our thought leadership, including our 10 macro themes, visit guggenheiminvestments.com slash perspectives. So long. Important notices and disclosures. One basis point is equal to 0.01%. Investing involves risk, including the possible loss of principal. Stock markets can be volatile. Investments in securities of small and medium capitalization companies may involve greater risk of loss and more abrupt fluctuations in market price than investments in larger companies. The market value of fixed income securities will change in response to interest rate changes and market conditions, among other things. Investments in fixed income instruments are subject to the possibility that interest rates could rise, causing their value to decline. High-yield securities present more liquidity and credit risk than investment-grade bonds and may be subject to greater volatility. Investors in asset-backed securities, or ABS, including mortgage-backed securities, or MBS, and collateralized loan obligations, or CLOs, generally receive payments that are part interest and part return of principal. These payments may vary based on the rate loans are repaid. Some asset-backed securities may have structures that make their reaction to interest rates and other factors difficult to predict making their prices volatile, and are subject to liquidity and valuation risk. CLOs bear similar risk to investing in loans directly, such as credit, interest rate, counterparty, prepayment, liquidity and valuation risks. Loans are often below investment grade, may be unrated, and typically offer a fixed or floating interest rate. This podcast is distributed or presented for informational or educational purposes only and should not be considered a recommendation of any particular security, strategy or investment product, or as investing advice of any kind. This material is not provided in a fiduciary capacity, may not be relied upon for or in connection with the making of investment decisions, and does not constitute a solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. The content contained herein is not intended to be and should not be construed as legal or tax advice and or a legal opinion. Always consult a financial, tax and or legal professional regarding your specific situation. The opinions contained herein are subject to change without notice. Forward-looking statements, estimates and certain information contained herein are based upon proprietary and non-proprietary research and other sources. 
Information contained herein has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but are not assured as to accuracy. No part of this material may be reproduced or referred to in any form without express written permission of Guggenheim Partners, LLC. There is neither representation nor warranty as to the current accuracy of nor liability for decisions based on such information. Past performance is not indicative of future results.